Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kellen, it's so frustrating to record these podcasts when we do, because it's always a couple of weeks before they release. So whenever there's a current event happening, I feel really sheepish talking about it, because I know that by the time our audience hears it, it's just such old news. They're probably sick of talking about it, sick of hearing about it. But for us, you know, today is February 24th, 2022, and it's just been 24 hours since Russia invaded Ukraine. And it's been a wild 24 hours. Feels like it's been more than that to me, because it's just been such a long day of paying attention to it. And But it's interesting for me to think about that when our listeners hear this, the entire dynamic of what's going on will likely be completely different than it is now. Yeah, and we just had like a half hour long conversation about this that we recorded as our bonus episode for those who support us on Patreon. And because things work just a little bit differently with how we record those episodes and edit those episodes and publish them, that conversation will be heard by all of those listeners tomorrow. Tomorrow for us now, not tomorrow for the listener two weeks from now. <laughs> right. So to anyone who's listening to this episode on the day that it's being released, this insane event that has happened with Russia invading Ukraine is perhaps old news, right? It's something that happened two weeks ago, and maybe it's fizzled out, or maybe it has continued to escalate. And and for us, in this moment while we're recording, we just have no idea. Yeah, it'd be really nice to be able to know the future and to be able to see that, oh, this does just fizzle out. This is not going to escalate into anything worse. But to us now, it doesn't appear that way, right? We're watching 
at this very moment, what's happening, you know, just earlier today, they were talking about something like 150 casualties by Ukrainian forces, something like 400 injuries. There's, of course, been all these bombardments of different cities throughout Ukraine. And President Zelensky is saying that he feels he's enemy number one and that Russian special forces are closing in on the capital, Kiev. Where it goes from here, we really have no idea. In that bonus episode, the purpose of it was to talk about whether or not war in Ukraine is a collapse topic and whether or not it's something related to collapse. But one of the main takeaways from that conversation was just how tragic it is, how awful it is for the people experiencing it. The human toll of war is something that is just absolutely tragic. And so our hearts go out to those already affected by this invasion and to those who have been affected by it in the time between when we're recording this and when you're hearing it. Yeah, it really is heartbreaking. And I can only imagine what it's like to be in that situation and to be experiencing things either directly or indirectly, right? You're either actually witnessing the violence or you've got that dread and that panic, perhaps a sense of hopelessness. There are so many tragic impacts that something like that has on so many people. And Corey, you and I have already talked in our other conversation about all of the potential implications at a larger scale. But anyways, as you're listening to this, just know that I think both Corey, you and I are feeling all of that heartbreak while at the same time we've had all this focus on what's going on and trying to understand the situation. And so if we seem a little bit scattered while we have this conversation that we are now about to launch into, I hope our listeners can understand. Yeah, so the conversation that we want to have today is one that I've had in the, the back of my mind for a while now. I think it's a really important conversation. And within the conversation, we'll be introducing a, a specific topic that is such a, a big topic that there's just absolutely no way we can do it justice in this one episode. And that's going to require a ton more study and research on our part, and that we'll likely touch back on many times in the future. But the, the main topic of the episode is the two types of collapse, an intentional collapse via degrowth versus a collapse that's forced upon us. So we've talked about throughout the podcast how collapse is inevitable. And really early on in the podcast, we talked about how there's kind of these two different options. Either we don't do anything and just carry on business as usual and have collapse forced upon us or take the approach of reversing our growth, basically causing our own collapse in order to lessen the impact. Pretty much the entirety of the podcast has been talking about the forced collapse, right? Which is just this idea that we're going to continue business as usual for as long as we possibly can. Growth is the name of the game. It's what keeps our economy going. It's the platform on which politicians run, right? We are going to increase GDP. We're going to increase standards of living, growth, growth, growth. And we're going to do that until the natural restraints are so great that growth is no longer possible, that we reverse and have that degrowth forced upon us. This is the most likely scenario, and that's why we've spent 75 episodes talking about it from this perspective. We'll talk later about why that is, what the barriers are to a intentional degrowth. But like we've talked about before, the consequences of pushing as far as we can are far greater than making the choice collectively to collapse on our own. You know, John Michael Greer has that really famous saying, famous within the collapse community of collapse now and avoid the rush. 
that can be applied on an individual scale. It could also be applied all the way up to a, a societal scale. I think it was episode three on energy when I was saying that a collapse via peak oil would be merciful because it would stop us from destroying the planet to such an extent that there couldn't be future habitants that, that occupied it. If we were to collapse early on, there may be a remnant of people that can pick up the pieces and create a society afterwards and hopefully do it better the next time. If we go so far that we destroy the planet to such a degree that makes occupying that planet extremely difficult, and there's no guarantee about what that future looks like. The other option, the option of a voluntary collapse, degrowth, is a huge topic. Like I mentioned earlier, there's no way that we can do that option justice in this episode. We're not going to even attempt to get into the mechanics of that, to try and explain the details of what that would mean or what the current movements are around degrowth. I've got about 10 books to read, probably a handful of podcasts to listen to, several lectures, you know, to really feel comfortable to be able to present that idea appropriately. The idea of this episode is to just give a very high-level overview of the difference between what a forced collapse versus a voluntary collapse might look like. Yeah, as you describe that, you know, I often think of a parallel between the health of a society and the health of an individual. And for some reason, that imagery just makes it more concrete in my mind. So for example, let's say there's an individual who is on the couch all day, every day, just eating Twinkies and their health is getting worse and worse. And a doctor tells them like, you need to make some changes or else you will have a heart attack. And those changes are not easy. It's painful to start exercising. Your lungs can't handle it. Your muscles are sore. To change your diet is not convenient or easy. Maybe in your mind, it doesn't taste as good. But you're left with those two options, right? Either you're going to continue status quo and natural consequences will cause severe pain or even death. Or you can deliberately make certain changes that can help you kind of reverse the trajectory you're on. But there are a lot of barriers to that. And there's a lot of reasons why people who are living an unhealthy lifestyle continue to do so, even though they know it's not good for them. So I don't know if that perfectly aligns with what you're describing, Corey, but that just helps me as I kind of think about these two different options we have as a society. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. And it's hard to make a perfect comparison for what degrowth would be. And it's because there's a lot of different visions of degrowth. And we'll talk about a little bit about that later. You know, I think there are some people who are really into the degrowth movement that would take issue with me saying that degrowth is a voluntary collapse. There are people who say, no, degrowth wouldn't be a collapse at all. You know, there's ways that we can degrow and prevent collapse completely. And this is something that we'll hash out much more again later when we do more research on it. But from where I stand now and my viewpoint on it is I don't think there is any way that we could degrow to a point that we could just prevent collapse completely. And each person would have to come to their own conclusion based on their own research of degrowth and the degrowth movement. But one thing I want to hurry and point out before we dive any deeper, this episode is going to be a little different than other episodes in that Kellen and I are not going to present like a bunch of facts and figures and, you know, even try and say like degrowth is good or degrowth is bad or degrowth is going to work or it's not. We do that type of thing in a lot of our other episodes. This one is just meant to be a discussion, kind of a, a chat between Kellen and I regarding our viewpoints of the overall ideas of the two different types of collapse. Yeah. And like you've pointed out, there are so many books written out there about degrowth. It's such a large topic in and of itself. 
that we want to have kind of a soft introduction of it here in the context of these two different types of collapse. And that will help lay the foundation for when we revisit the topic further down the road. So to kind of introduce the topic, I think it's important to understand clearly the idea of paradigm shifts. You know, everyone listening to this was born and raised in sort of our modern systems, our modern culture, our modern societies. And it's the way that our brain thinks about the world. We think about the way we live based on how we've lived up till now. And because it's been our entire lives this way in this system, it feels like this is the only way. And it's interesting for me to think about how things didn't have to be this way. We could have taken a completely different path, even in just the last few hundred years, and ended up in a completely different place as a society. To a lot of people, modern economics seems like the only possible economics that exist. Growth is the only option. It's the only way to have a healthy economy because we've never known an economy that existed around sustainability or no growth at all. Everything that we know today is man-made. And economics, as complex as the theories are, you know, those theories were put together by people. The idea of money, fiat currencies, our financial systems, everything about the way that governments, democracy, bureaucracies work, they're all things that were sort of molded and shaped and crafted throughout the years as a means to an end. And unfortunately, we took this route of what seems to be greed, the desire for power, trying to be better than other people, a system in which people are able to consolidate power and wealth and capital while others go without. And it's fun for me to sort of fantasize and think about what if we'd made different choices a few hundred years ago and committed ourselves to something different? Where could we be today as a society? What sort of utopia could we live in if we had made choices that were purely for the good of everyone rather than choices that were selfish? Yeah, and you're spot on in saying that the culture, the beliefs, the theories and practices and principles that we are saturated in, that we're raised in, is largely what shapes our paradigm. In fact, in doing some research for this discussion, I was a little bit surprised to learn that GDP or gross domestic product only really became the measuring stick for a nation's wealth or welfare in like the late 30s, early 40s, kind of coming out of the carnage of the Great Depression, World War II. In my mind, I just assumed that that's always the way that people looked at nations and their economic well-being. But that's not the case. And it's interesting to start to think outside the box a little bit and think of other ways that we can measure an economy. You know, I've got a couple of things kind of ringing in my ears. One comment that somebody made on, on a post that we did on Patreon came from somebody named Christine. Christine, if you're out there listening to this episode, just know that it gave me a good chuckle. You said, I read somewhere that once somebody approaches a billion, they can be given an award that says, I won at capitalism, and that's the end of it. And it's a funny point that like we, nobody needs that much wealth. It doesn't change anything really about their quality of life at a certain point. It doesn't produce more value for a society. And it doesn't make them happier, right? We've talked in the past, you've brought up these studies and I, in doing the research for this episode, I saw several things bringing up those same studies saying your quality of life and your happiness doesn't change once you hit a, you know, a general range of income. However, you are making other people's lives worse 
by not being willing to share the wealth, basically. Yeah. And another thing that has kind of been echoing in my mind comes from a podcast that I listened to one episode of. I don't know much about the podcast, but the conversation that was taking place was really interesting. I'll try to make sure that we link to it in the episode description, but there's an individual who wrote like an 800 page thesis all about degrowth. And when he was being questioned about it, he spoke about value and what really creates value. And the fact that in our current system, we measure value based on the ability of something to create profit. And yet there are a lot of things out there that have inherent value that aren't necessarily profitable. And then at one point he talked about this other concept that he called macroeconomic surplus. And it's this idea on a larger scale of looking at a society and quantifying needs and then measuring that against GDP, recognizing what kind of a surplus there is and using that to redistribute wealth and perhaps to put resources toward activities that would allow us to be more sustainable as a society. Anyways, we don't need to dive into all the details there, but it is fascinating to think that there are other ways to do things than how we've been doing them. And it's been ingrained in us that like capitalism how we're living it now and the way that we're measuring success is the best way to do it. And I'm not like anti-capitalist. I think there's trade-offs, there's pros and cons with any economic system. But for our current needs, if we were to look at like a needs-based way of doing economics, it seems like our current approach isn't fulfilling our needs as a society. And you know, a lot of people who talk about degrowth, they just get laughed at because it's so different from the status quo. It's so different than what we're used to that People who are really into the way we're doing things just look at it as ridiculous. But I think so many of the things that are talked about with degrowth have so much merit and are so important. And I I wish that it was the way that we were doing things or that we could shift to it. You know, you you just talked about like a needs-based economy. There's something called donut economics, which is this really fascinating concept, which is basically... Moving away from this idea of GDP and the need for growth to keep an economy moving to staying within a range of, like you've said, needs. When you think about the amount of waste in our current system, you know, any company will do anything to make a certain amount of profit, regardless of how much waste that creates. Going back to something else that John Michael Greer said, you know, if I can make a 10 cent profit off of every Billy Bass fish that I can sell, and I know I'm going to sell a million of them, then I'm going to do it. Even though that Billy Bass fish is a stupid, worthless product. Hey, come on, man. Think of all the entertainment value. (laughs) Yeah. So, and that's not to say that there wouldn't, in an economy like this, that there wouldn't be any sort of entertainment, right? But in the supply chain episode, we talked about all the things that go into building that, from the batteries to the plastics to the rubber to the motors to whatever, all the transportation and shipping for that one dumb little product. And you multiply that by the millions of products. And overall, the way that we've set up our manufacturing, our factories, our our production, our transportation, and the amount of wasted energy and wasted resources that go into all that. It's like we could all live these perfectly content, happy lives, getting everything that we need and just cut out the waste. And that could have an impact on the planet, on the whole concept of collapse that is just completely, you can't overstate how big of an impact that would have. And yet it's so foreign to so many people, that idea, 
that it's scoffed at and laughed at. I'll link to the idea of donut economics in the episode description so that if you want to learn more about what that's all about, you can check it out there. I do think we'll talk about it more in a, in a later episode. But if you've never heard of it before and you want to have a bit of a paradigm shift, it's a great resource with some quick little animated videos. There's like seven one and a half minute videos that are able to tell a pretty great story in a very short amount of time. You know, as we kind of offhandedly mention these different potential economic systems, there are so many theories and models out there and approaches that we could take. And along with that, there are so many opinions, the kind of debates that go on between economists. It's kind of exhausting, to be honest. But when you look at how we do things currently, a lot of the foundation for our kind of Western capitalist modern philosophy comes from this idea of the invisible hand. You've probably heard that before. Adam Smith, this philosopher, economist from a few centuries ago, he presented this idea that people doing what is in their own self-interest collectively is beneficial to society, right? And that the pricing mechanisms, the, the balance between supply and demand, allowing the market to decide is what's going to result in the biggest net gain for society as a whole. And although there are so many ways that you can look at that and, and there are parts of that are, that are very valid, I also think we can point to a lot of examples where having everyone do only what's in their best self-interest in trying to turn a profit doesn't necessarily result in the greatest outcome for society. You mentioned all the waste and we look at something like climate change and all of our emissions, our pollution, our resource depletion, and people allowing the market to decide and doing what turns the biggest profit may be great for those individuals who have cracked the code on that in the short term, but it's obviously causing big systematic issues for society as a whole in the long term. Basically, every cause of collapse that we've talked about is a result of us having set up our system the way that it's set up, us having taken the wrong path of requiring growth instead of us taking the path of a needs-based economy. And obviously, that's simplifying it. There's a lot more to that. But I mean, when you look at, at everything, all of, all of our previous episodes, it's all about poor planning. It's all about, really, in the end, growing overshooting past natural sustainable limits and that's all due to greed so i'm filled with sadness right when i when i have this paradigm shift and i look at what could have been and what we actually chose but those in the degrowth movement say now hold on it's not too late we can get back to that that way of life that, w that we wish we had let's turn a new page and let's get back to that now and i want to kind of take a pause here for a second to introduce kind of a new idea, or at least a new vocabulary word that I learned in the research for this. And I learned this sort of looking through a book called Lean Logic. And I'm really excited to dive into this book further. It's basically a, a dictionary of collapse ideas. And one of the one of the words that they talk about here is called climacteric. Have you heard of that word before, Kellen? No, I haven't. So if you just Google it, a climacteric is a critical period or event, and it's most oftenly used in sort of a, a medical or an anatomical terminology. So for example, like the female climacteric is menopause. It's a critical period or event, you know, in the life of a female when there are significant changes in her body, right? Males also have a climacteric, which is usually they say about a decade later, and it's when there are major hormonal changes in the male body as well. 
in Lean Logic, he talks about climactrics more in the sense of entire systems. He defines it as a stage in the life of a system in which it is especially exposed to a profound change in health or fortune. Climactrics for human society could be taken to include the end of the last ice age and the beginnings of agriculture and of industry. The climactric considered in Lean Logic is the convergence of events which can be expected in the period 2010 to 2040. So in that book, they're kind of saying like society is going through a major change between 2010 and 2040, we kind of view that as our major climacteric. You're saying as a society, we're going through menopause. <laughs> that's, that's right. Basically, a major shift or change. And the idea here being that that climacteric that we go through, he's basically referring to collapse. It's this period of intense change. But what he's kind of saying is that we can kind of choose what that climacteric looks like, what the trajectory is. It can be this epic forced collapse, this thing that's forced upon us because we just continue to try and grow business as usual. Or there's this other option where we kind of come together and say, this isn't working. This is leading us to a very bad place. We need to make dramatic changes now. And so the reason I bring all that up is obviously because in the degrowth movement, it's this idea that we can take control of our destiny we can make a conscious effort to shift from our current need for growth economically to a needs-based economy. Not only are we going to slow our growth, not only are we going to shift to renewables, but we're actually going to reverse in the opposite direction and lower the amount of energy use, the amount of waste, the amount of consumption, resource use, all of these things back to a point of sustainability. And again, this next part is perhaps just my opinion, right? But there's a difference between sort of what the utopian view of degrowth is. Basically, sort of this idea that we can get back to that world that we could have had if we had just done it right from the very beginning versus what the reality of what attempts at degrowth might actually be, which in my mind, as stated in the title of this episode, is still a form of collapse. I personally, and Kellen, you might not agree with me on this, but I personally don't see a smooth transition to degrowth being a possibility. This idea that we can sort of just gently transition and get to a place of sustainability without collapse. And the main reason that I say this is because what is the definition of collapse? Well, Joseph Tainter will tell you it's a rapid simplification of your society. And that's literally what degrowth is. You're rapidly simplifying your structures. And, and in that process of simplification, you're going to lose a lot of the types of complexities obviously, that make our society what it is. And I think a lot of what will inform a person on their opinion of whether we can have a slow, gradual degrowth that's more comfortable and isn't as messy or catastrophic has to do with timeline. Going back to our analogy of the couch potato who's eating junk food all day, never moves or exercises. If the doctor says, hey, based on all this data, at your current trajectory, in 15 years, you'll have a heart attack. That's a very different story than, hey, if you don't make some serious changes quick, you're going to have a heart attack within the year. And I think we're up against some really interesting constraints because like, let's say that we start to consume a little bit less and maybe people are having less children gradually than they were in past generations. And we're kind of hitting our peak and starting to come down the other side and slowly gradually degrowing, perhaps that's all good and great. But if you feel like climate change is getting worse and worse and so much of that is baked in, we don't really have time to gradually degrow. And if you feel like we're running out of resources and that we have to curb 
the way that we're consuming at a much faster rate before we're going to completely run out of some of the resources that we need. Or if you look at the trajectory of our financial system, our political system, any of the other aspects of collapse that we've discussed. And if you feel like we're already so far past our carrying capacity and we're just propped up by oil, you know, I I guess what I'm saying is if you feel like collapse is imminent and that it's coming soon and that we're about to run into that brick wall, then a gradual degrowth isn't really in the cards. But if you think we've got centuries, then you could see how that's a much more optimistic situation. Yeah, really well said. A very rapid degrowth would would be collapse by definition, right? And I'll say it again, it would be a much better collapse than the one that would be forced upon us. This idea of degrowth to me is awesome. Kellen, you and I are beneficiaries of the system that we live in, in that we live above average compared to the world average right? Pretty much everyone in the United States, not all, but most in the United States are living well above average. And so it seems a little bit hypocritical to talk about it. And there are a lot of people that make sacrifices to lower their consumption, right? And to to really be mindful of that. And there's so much respect to be had for people that, that are willing to make those deep sacrifices in their life. And there's a lot of conversations around what impact am I making when I sacrifice those things when the other 7 billion are not, you know, and, and that's not what this conversation is about. But I really respect the idea of degrowth. And I feel like if this was ever something that was going to be voted on, for example, if it could ever catch enough support that there was a referendum or something, an emergency vote on whether we should degrow, I would be on that train. I would vote for it, even knowing that it would lower my standard of living. Now, am I going to voluntarily just lower my standard of living right now? Honestly, probably not, because it's not going to make a difference on a global scale. But if I knew that everyone else was doing it, that we were all doing it together, I'd be right on it. And again, I know that's going to sound hypocritical and, you know, maybe I should give up everything I have and live like they do in, in a third world country, right? Sometimes I feel guilt that I don't. It's a choice that that I make because I don't feel like it would change anything if I did that. But anyway, that's to say that loving this idea, a fast degrowth could be tremendous for the world. A slow degrowth, like the one you're talking about that we just kind of very gradually degrow over time, we probably just don't have time for that. If you picture a graph and you picture a horizontal line on that graph where you've passed the carrying capacity where you're now in overshoot, you know, we're way above that. And if we just gradually decline over centuries... Those are centuries that we're still above overshoot. We're still spending more resources than we have. We're still doing damage to the environment, to the ecosystems, and collapse is likely to still be forced upon us. So with that being said, there is sort of this utopia view of degrowth and all these ideas of what that could look like. There was recently an article that was actually posted to the collapse subreddit that was about what degrowth being implemented overnight would look like in a country like New Zealand. The author of this degrowth blog, it's a very popular blog that we'll link to in the episode description, but the author of this blog basically makes the case that the movement of degrowth is gaining momentum. Their evidence for that, they, they link to this tweet that mentions that there were 3,200 scientific articles published about degrowth in 2019, which was up from just 600 in 2010. So a pretty significant increase. And they're saying, okay, so there's all this increase in momentum in talking about this and really studying this. What if the prime minister of New Zealand came out and did this speech? And in the speech, they basically said, starting today, as a nation, we're going to engage in degrowth. 
the author of this blog lists what that means, what the impacts are going to be for the country, what sort of safeguards they're going to take to make that happen. You know, having faith that in, in doing this, other countries are going to quickly follow suit and that pretty soon the whole world would be engaging in degrowth. A lot of wealth is going to be lost in this transition. It's unavoidable. We have to do it to save the planet and we're all going to engage in that together. But the reality of implementing something like this is so much messier, is so much more impractical. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I have to stress again, I would love it if this happened, right? I would love it if this were the case. But I think in the reality that we live in, it's simply not. Um, if degrowth were to ever happen, I think it would likely be during some terrible point in our climacteric, right? As society is going through this major shift, perhaps as infrastructure is starting to really be lost and people's wealth is being hit anyway, you know, through a terrible economic time, Basically, when our current system is already imploding and people wake up to the idea that this isn't working. Because right now, you can't get people to wear a mask, right, without arguing about it, without causing a huge uproar. Imagine telling people that suddenly they were going to lose most of their wealth and the options that they have in the grocery store and Amazon was going to go bye-bye. <laughs> you know, it, it would it is just unbelievable to me. But I could see it being a little more likely in a time when we're in a serious crisis due to forced collapse having already begun. And there's also this question of sort of the messiness of how something like this would be implemented. Would it be implemented on a global scale? Or would certain localized societies choose to do it one way and other societies a different way? And then how locally will those decisions be made? And it would probably depend on how far down the collapse pathway we were at that point. You know, if the sooner a decision is made, the more likely it would have to be made on a global scale or a national scale. Whereas if you're further along down a forced collapse pathway, the less possibility there is for decisions to be made on that wide of a scale. It would have to be made more locally because that global and national infrastructure isn't in place anymore. The reason I bring this up is just to say it's not like, oh, we either degrow completely and it's this utopian degrowth or we don't do it at all. It could very likely be a hybrid of we're in this forced collapse and some people choose to take that path and find a better way. And those are the societies that are likely, or more likely, to survive, the ones who choose to become sustainable, basically. And that's something that I think we'll talk a lot about more in our next podcast, is about how you as an individual or your neighborhood or your local community is more likely to survive if you can choose a needs-based, hyper-localized economy. Seeing our current society and the way it works, it's hard for me to imagine degrowth happening at a large scale. But I certainly believe that there are principles that are super important to learn about that we can apply in our own lives. And I believe that the more that this is talked about and hashed out, the more likely it is that as we go into our climacteric, as things start to shift rapidly, the more that these types of conversations will be taken seriously, as opposed to now where they're, for the most part, laughed at. Yeah, I think you bring up really great points about how challenging and messy it really would be to try and implement any degrowth strategies on a large scale. But that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile, especially when we're headed toward a cliff. I feel like, Corey, you and I are hungry to talk more about this. There's so much more to talk about here. But I will just say that at least in the short term, there's not really any incentive there, especially for those that are in a place to be able to make these changes happen. Obviously, our current system benefits the people that are in power. And at some point along the way, if we ever want to change the way that we operate as a society, I think it's going to be hard to sell that it's more beneficial to anybody from an economic perspective. 
And I think the reason for that in part is because people have a hard time with those paradigm shifts. You say it's, it's going to be a hard sell to show them why from an economic perspective it's beneficial. And that's because it wouldn't be beneficial to most people in our current economic perspectives. Our economic perspective is about money and wealth and growth. A needs-based economic system, one in which we value social capital, one in which we value sustainability, one in which we value relationships and those types of things, you know, culture, art, that's the type of economic value that would be bountiful in a degrowth economy. The ability to hoard a bunch of capital and money and power, well, yeah, like that's that's a tough sell. If that's what you're after, that's not what degrowth is about. But how do you convince the whole world, especially the ones who hold the power, who don't want to relinquish it, to give it up for something like that? Well, and I think the only way to get there is through somehow increasing compassion. Like really, when you look at how brutal capitalism is, you can look at our history of slavery in the United States. Like that was very economically beneficial for white plantation owners who had a bunch of slaves. It was an awful, monstrous, disgraceful part of our history. And yet from a purely capitalist standpoint, they were playing the game to the max capacity, right? They, they were doing what would turn the most profit. You know, you look at examples from pharmaceutical companies that will have some sort of a life-saving drug that they've produced and they choose to increase the cost of it by like 6,000%. And they're playing the capitalist game the way it's been set up to be played, but without that like human decency, without that compassion toward others, there's never going to be a reason to change. Even when we look at just compassion toward future generations, if we don't care at all about them, then why make a change? Let's just crank out as much profit as possible and live as luxurious of lives as we possibly can. And again, I know, like you said, Corey, all of this sounds very hypocritical coming from two individuals talking into microphones in like the wealthiest nation on the planet. But yeah, from a systematic standpoint, I think any of these other economic systems that we could put into place that would achieve the kind of degrowth results that we would hope for would require people, probably including you and I, caring more about other people. Yeah, it seems like there's sort of two options here, that everyone comes together and says, this is a change we want to make for the betterment of society, because it does two things, right? It's, it saves us from collapse, basically, or at least the worst consequences of a forced collapse, but it also provides more equity and equality. Or on the other hand, if not everyone comes together and says, we want to do this, you have what was portrayed in this article on the blog I just mentioned with a leader who says, this is what we're doing, you know, and you start at that point to get into the requirement of an authoritarian leader, you know, echo fascism, you start to kind of go down this ugly road where it's like, it would take someone in power to enforce those rules. I think about the arguments currently being had in society around things like climate change, we can't even agree as a society that there's any trouble to be had. There are so many people who think that infinite growth is okay. And for those people, why even talk about degrowth? And for many people who do believe in climate change, they've got this whole techno-hopium thing, thinking we're going to be able to work ourselves out of this by growth. Growth is our savior, right? And so I won't lie, you know, all of, all of this and, and thinking about this gets me both really sort of giddy and excited and at the same time hyper-depressed <laughs> because 
on the one hand, what an awesome paradigm shift to have to realize that there are better ways to realize that you know, there is this other path where there could be so much harmony and equity and well-being among everyone that's shared. And then sort of this sadness in realizing, well, we didn't take that path. And it certainly doesn't look like that path is something that we're going to take voluntarily now. And there's just a lot of frustration for me in that. I didn't know much about degrowth until recently. And I still, like we've said already a few times, there's so much more to learn that we'll present at a later time. But this was a paradigm shift for me. A deep one. It, it changed the way that I view humanity for better and for worse. You know, I was filled with this instant, this is what has to happen. We we have to get to this. Like if we could just do this. And then, you know, moments later filled with this anxiety of we're never going to do this. But anyway, like you said, just because it's something that doesn't appear is ever going to happen on a global or, or wide scale doesn't mean that there aren't incredibly important things that we can take from it and learn from it to apply in our own lives to help not only prepare us for the future, but help make the lives of those around us better. You know, one thing that's interesting to me is that having a paradigm shift like you, what you're talking about and realizing maybe there are better ways to do things and it doesn't have to be this way, while also realizing that it's probably unlikely we're going to see the kind of changes we might like to see, you know, that can leave a person feeling not only frustrated, but also just jaded and cynical. And it can perhaps cause somebody to feel resentment, not only toward the system at large, but also toward lots of individuals. You know, I did some research just trying to kind of get my mind around the evolution of capitalism. And there are so many opinions and arguments out there. There are people that feel like capitalism is just human nature. It's not really a system. Others see it as a system that evolved after feudalism and, and mercantilism. And there is a history there where you can see the way that things kind of progressed from one way of doing things to another to another. And undoubtedly, there has been greed along the way. And there have been poor choices that have been made. But I think in 99.99% of cases, it's not like people are just terrible, evil, awful human beings that are trying to cause pain toward others. I think often people have thought, oh, this way of doing things is what's best. Or they've simply thought, this seems to be what works and I'm going to do what's going to help me take care of myself and my family. We weren't so globalized before and we didn't have all the same kind of global threats that we have now. And people didn't really need to think about anything outside of their immediate sphere in many cases. And so I guess what I'm saying is as depressing as it can be to look at the current state of things and the gap between where we're at now and what the ideal state would be, I hope people don't start to develop this hatred toward others and feel like everyone is evil, greedy capitalists and has resulted in a lot of good for some people and bad for other people. And we're in a predicament now. Frustration, I think is fair. But when it comes to immediately discrediting a human being because of their lifestyle, I think you're walking on kind of dangerous ground. Yeah, when you were talking, I kind of thought that it's this idea that like, people are selfish, not evil. I'm selfish, right? I live in excess of what I need, right? Of what I absolutely need to, to survive. You know, it's interesting going back to the donut economics page that I had talked about one of the things that they bring up is research that shows that 
the more someone studies our current economic system or what's called the rational man in economics of what a rational person should do or would do in economics, the more selfish they become. It's like our human nature isn't to be selfish. We're training ourselves to be selfish by living in the society that we live in. We need to give each other a little slack. You know, we all live in this capitalist society where we are basically told that to survive, we need to try and accumulate wealth and and buffer ourselves. And it's a dog-eat-dog world, like they say, because that's the world that we created. I don't want to be the dog that's eaten. Neither do you. If given the chance to be wealthy, most people would take that chance. So I think it's a totally valid point that the kindness and compassion that we want to see that would allow for degrowth to be something that even makes sense, we should be showing that to each other now, you know, despite the fact that someone might be doing well in the current system. Now, yeah, if someone's taking advantage of other people to get there, then we're talking about serious issues. But an entrepreneur who's doing the best they can to be the best person they can be, and they're doing well in the capitalist system without consciously harming other people or taking advantage of others, I don't think it's right to completely destroy them either. So I get what you're saying. So in the end, to kind of summarize what we've talked about, we've got these two options for collapse. One is extremely hard to achieve, but would be much better for humanity. The other is the path of least resistance, the most likely one that we'll take and is going to lead to much steeper consequences. There's this paradigm shift of what could have been and what could still be, but the reality and the difficulties of getting there can seem overwhelming. But that's not a reason to not learn about and take seriously the ideas of degrowth, of looking at economies in a different way, of having a, that paradigm shift still, and allowing ourselves to apply the principles of, of that type of economy in our own lives. I look forward to doing more research on this. I'll probably continue to be frustrated as, as I described in this mixture of emotions of loving the idea of it and hating the fact that it's going to be really hard, if not impossible, to implement on a wide scale. If you're frustrated with this episode because you're really into degrowth and you feel like we got it all wrong, reach out and yell at us. Give us your opinion. That's, that's fine. We have admitted that we are no experts on the topic, at least in depth, but we look forward to revisiting the topic again in the future. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.